I did have a, a sermon. I got a message uh, on Wednesday. I think it was uh, in the airport in Sydney as we were leaving from Dr. Winnale. said, you got the sermon on the Sabbath. Uh, so I had to quickly bring my thoughts together and think about what would be appropriate. And I did. And when I got here, he said, what I'd like you to speak on is... <laughs> is a little bit about the work that you're involved in in the southeastern Southeast Asia work. So Joshua, if you'd like to put that map up, um, we'll just show everybody and give you an insight into some of the aspects of um, what the, the Southeast Asia or the uh, um, Asia region of the world entails. And I'm not sure how long I will speak on that, but if I uh, run out of uh, information, then I'll give you the sermon that I was planning to give to you. And uh, I mean, I, the example in the scripture is Paul preached to midnight, so uh, I hope none of you got anywhere to go. <laughs> but uh, one day we hope those sort of things can happen as we go into the end time age, it's becoming more and more difficult for people to comprehend the truth. I know when I came into the work in 1961, uh, Mr. Armstrong was preaching on radio and the Plain Truth magazine would come out every week and then later on we, we had the Good News magazine, uh, well the Plain Truth came out every month I should say, but also the Good News magazine came out every month. So there was an incredible amount of information that was becoming available. Two magazines a month, articles to read. I know when I was in Ambassador College, uh, we had to, when The Plain Truth was published, it was uh, um, required of us, those who worked in letter answering department, to read the magazine right after we received it and then a week later we were given 100 questions on the magazine uh, because uh, it was all part of being able to serve the people, to answer their questions, to send them the right literature, to know exactly what was in each magazine. And it was a wonderful thing to do. The amazing thing was people back then could actually sit down and read for a couple of hours and concentrate on a particular article. I have a book at home that I'm reading at the moment called The Shallows. I, I just don't remember the author at this time, but he points out in our technological information age now, and the, and the author himself actually has a, a doctorate in literature, and he was an avid reader. He'd sit down and just read a whole book in one session type of thing, but he got himself a computer in the 1990s, and he signed up to things like, well, the, you know, various things on the internet and uh, emails and, and Facebook and so forth. And he said even though way back he could concentrate on reading and, and uh, retain what he read, he found himself after becoming an avid computer user that after about three paragraphs he became fidgety and it was hard for him to concentrate on what was happening. And even today, one of the big problems that people have in even comprehending the truth is that you cannot get it across in three paragraphs. And as many of you know, when you search the internet, you're going from here to here and here and you're surfing over there and we're not, not taking in a lot of information. But in any case, I don't want to get sidetracked too much here, but... Um, uh, this is one of the difficulties that uh, personally or as far as being the regional director and I guess that map is up there in that part of the world uh, that we find that people are not able to sit down and just read an article or concentrate on a subject for all that long period of time. And so it is a challenge that we have trying to get information across to individuals because our whole mindset has been changed over the last 50 years. Uh, just to point out about this map up here, I cannot see it too well, but right down the bottom there you'll see where the, the, the lines radiate out from where we live and where our office is 
in Adelaide in South Australia, which is one of the, the states of the Commonwealth. And uh, it's interesting, just to give you a little bit of uh, insight into, not too much insight into Adelaide, but there is a relationship between Adelaide and Charlotte. You may not realise that, but Charlotte, of course, was the wife of King George III, and um, it's retained its name even though the British were driven out of Charlotte. Cornwallis was driven out and he said Charlotte was the, what, the, the centre of rebellion or something like that. But um, he got uh, uh, soundly defeated. Um, and, uh, of course, King George III uh, had a son who later on became King George IV, uh, King George IV then married his wife sometime later, whose name was Adelaide. And so when Queen Adelaide, well, she was a consort, but when she had a child uh, in about 1817 or so, she actually named her daughter Charlotte. So it's interesting that uh, even though we're on the other side of the world, uh, there is a relationship between the two cities because of the family relationship of the two kings of England. So I thought I'd just throw that in just to get, uh, let you know a little bit about uh, where we ended up as far as our regional office in South Australia is concerned. Uh, in in the, this map up here, before I go too far, you'll see a lot of, I hope they've come out, lightning bolts. Now, over the last 10 years, I put those in there because they are the centres of all the natural disasters, not all the natural disasters we've had, the major natural disasters that we've had in this region of the world. Um, we've had the Cyclone Pam over in Vanuatu just recently, one of the most severe cyclones to ever go through that area. We had Cyclone Yolanda up in... Um, uh, the Philippines about two years ago now. Uh, we've just had this massive earthquake up in Nepal. We had another one up in uh, Pakistan just to the west of it uh, uh, a little earlier on. We've had the incredible tsunami in uh, western Indonesia that wiped out, including the people in Sri Lanka, that wiped out a quarter of a million people just in one hit. Uh, we had the tsunami up in Japan that you'll see up there as well. And so over the last several years, uh, I estimate just with the, some of these uh, disasters here, that in, the, in the region we've lost about a half a million people uh, just through earthquakes, tsunamis, floods, cyclones, tornadoes, hurricanes and so forth. And that doesn't include all the sadness that comes as a result of people losing members of their families, especially when the husbands are killed in something like that. It leaves wives and children to fend for themselves because most of these places don't have a welfare system or a social security or some sort of aid that can be given on an ongoing basis. And, uh, and so consequently there is incredible suffering that happens that we don't even get to hear about. We, we just hear the number of deaths that take place. But the follow-on from that is quite serious and, and, and disastrous. So uh, I just wanted to put those up there to ju just show you that this area is certainly prone to a lot of uh, difficulties and uh, as you see up there, a lot of natural disasters around the place. We've been, as, as God's church, we've been able to help our members uh, in these areas. Uh, fortunately, we've had very little, um, well, we, I don't believe we've had any deaths from uh, the disasters that have happened. Our people in Vanuatu were spared a lot of the devastation and destruction. We just had one lady who, after it was all over, slipped over and broke her arm, but that was uh, about the major uh, problem that we had. They did lose a number of people, lost their crops, mostly their, their bananas, their mangoes, their um, uh, coconuts, um, which are very vital to their existence. 
and uh, a lot of those trees were just ripped apart and uh, it's going to take quite some time for them to be re-established and for them to be able to um, get back to normal again. I uh, want to mention on the map up there, you'll see where our office is right in the south. Just to the east of that, uh, you'll see where the city of Melbourne is. Uh, Mr. Rod King, who is often here in the past for the Council of Elders meetings and the conferences and so forth, uh, doing the telecast, he is now resident in Melbourne. I just visited him this last Monday, uh, just this, this week, um, I went down to see he and Mrs. King. Um, he's, he, when we were there on, on this past Monday, he was, Mrs. King said to me, he's having a good day. So uh, recently he did have some sort of a operation which didn't go too well and he was, in a, was suffering a lot. So you may remember him in your prayers, continue to remember him. Uh, it's not easy uh, for him, but he is doing a pretty good job, even in spite of the cancer that he has, of looking after the Melbourne congregation and taking care of the people there. He's able to usually preach every week. Um, as you know, he does sit down to do the preaching now because it's just very difficult for him to stand. But I did want to bring you up to date on that. And uh, as I said, we need to be praying that perhaps God will intervene and heal some of these people who are suffering like this and uh, the and, and, and that's what I was about to say a little bit earlier on with the uh, state of affairs in the world perhaps one way we get the message out ultimately is God will give us the gift of healings and other gifts that God shows us in the scriptures because when you get onto the internet and realize, and, and television, people are turning away from that. They're going to the, uh, the, the internet, the social media, and uh, as I said, was about to say before, very difficult for them to sit down for half an hour and, and concentrate on something unless it's a, you know, a high-intensity uh, movie full of violence and sex and stuff like that. They may sit there and watch that. But when it comes to God, they really don't want to... Uh, listen to what he has to say. You know, as it says in the book of Amos, uh, you know, they, they, there is going to be a famine. It's interesting, it says there's going to be a famine of the hearing of the word. Maybe not necessarily a famine of the word, but a famine of being able to take in what is being preached. Uh, I'm not 100% sure of that. It's just a thought that's come to my mind. Uh, because we know back over in Ezekiel, it says, they come to you as my people come, but they will not do what you say and uh, because they're not able to comprehend or hear or understand. And Christ tells us we need to take heed how we hear. But anyway, um, I, I certainly feel, as Dr. Meredith does, the one thing that's going to bring attention to God's work, to his people, to the message is that God grants us those gifts of being able to uh, do those miracles, not that we do them, but God does them, uh, to bring attention to God's work in the end time. Satan doesn't want the world to hear the message. We know that. Uh, uh, we are a threat to him and his kingdom. He's the God of this world, and we know Christ is returning to become the true King of kings and Lord of lords. And you can be sure Satan doesn't want one single one of us to inherit the kingdom of God and to be born into God's family as his very own children. So we do have a big work to do. Uh, it's not easy and we can only do it, of course, with God's help. So I do want to just go through a few points of uh, the work that we are doing that many of you are involved in. I must say, add that apart from Australia and New Zealand that you see up there, the rest of the nations where we have people attending is subsidised by the tithes and offerings that come into the work here in the United States. And uh, I'll explain that a little bit more, but most of our people are, are not rich. They're the, the weak of this world, 
and yet so many of them in scattered throughout Asia are just so dedicated. We help them, or you help them from here to keep the Feast of Tabernacles every year. Uh, otherwise, they would find it very, very difficult uh, as far as ministers and shepherds looking and watching over them. Uh, we also um, take care of them from here as well. So we're very, very, and they are very, very grateful. And many of them have said, make sure you thank the headquarters church for the efforts that go into helping us survive and the encouragement that always comes from headquarters each week in the uh, World Ahead up or the, the World Ahead update and uh, and uh, and the co-worker letters that uh, continually arrive. So they're very grateful for that. And I just wanted you to know that most of the work in Asia is supported by the tithes and offerings that come from uh, people like yourselves here in the United States. So as I mentioned in, in Vanuatu, which is over in the, the far uh, eastern area, um, I, might, I might just add there, basically from the international date line, uh, right across to India and Pakistan, we have about 25% of the world's, um, let's say, distance at the equator. Um, so that's about six, six time zones uh, that uh, we cover, that, that uh, area of the world, that region of the world incorporates, which of course includes China, Japan, India, Pakistan, Southeast Asia, uh, Sri Lanka, the Pacific Islands, Australia and New Zealand, New Guinea, uh, and so forth. So it's quite a large area. You cannot get in your car and just drive uh, and be there in a few hours. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. There's too much water in between all these countries, thousands and thousands of islands, and uh, it does take... It's, it's like the Apostle Paul says in Acts chapter 15. He'd, he'd been through, he'd been traveling through um, uh, Asia, um, that part of Asia, and, um, and not this part of Asia, but uh, he said uh, after his first trip, he said to Barnabas, he said, we need to go visit all these people again and see how they do. You know, and with, without that encouragement without shepherds being there, without ministers looking after people, um, we wither on the vine. You know, we need that constant encouragement. And God did establish the ministry for that purpose, to look after God's sheep, because there are just so many wolves out there that just want to devour. We've had our congregation in Sri Lanka, because we really didn't have a full-time minister, and it's difficult to get there. Uh, we've seen probably 75% of the people just devoured by uh, individuals who've wanted their own way and not able to be there to supervise them and head them in the right direction. And it's certainly been a very, very sad. But the ones we do have there now are very dedicated and very faithful. And I'll mention a little bit more about that later. Just before the Days of Unleavened Bread and the Passover... I travelled to Indonesia to visit Mr. Arias Nusantara, uh, spent a few days there and then flew up to Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia to meet with Mr. Raja Moses. I spent the Passover, the night-to-be and the first holy day with the Malaysian brethren. And then uh, on the Monday following the, um, or during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, I flew to the Philippines and spent the rest of the time with the Philippine ministers and the brethren in the church in Manila and kept the last holy day and the Sabbath with them as well before uh, heading back home after about two weeks of travelling. But let me uh, first of all tell you about Indonesia. Uh, Mr. Nusantara, um, a very dedicated young man, probably his mid to late 30s, he came into the, the work because of his mother. Um, his mother was a Dutch lady and because the Dutch uh, um, people um, controlled Indonesia to a certain extent. It was a Dutch colony, I think, from the 1600s 
um, because of the Dutch East India Trading Company and the Europeans that did want to uh, trade with the Spice Islands. And, um, and so the Dutch had a, a fairly large influence in Indonesia over a number of years, but it was right after the Second World War that Indonesia finally got its independence and um, uh, let loose, or the Dutch eventually let loose of the, the control that they had over that area. Well, Mr. Nusantara's mother was a Dutch lady and um, married to an Indonesian Muslim. Uh, the, uh, his mother was actually, let's say, uh, say Christian, um, uh, worldly Christian. She didn't really understand the truth, but she did come in contact with Mr. Armstrong and the Dutch edition of the Plain Truth magazine and the booklets and so forth. Uh, she's dead now, sadly, uh, but she did leave in uh, you know, her home all the history of uh, the or, or what she'd accumulated. And uh, Mr. Nusantara knew a little bit about his mum's beliefs, and never really got too involved. But then he read Mr. Armstrong's book on Mystery of the Ages. And suddenly his mind was just open up to understand the truth, and he contacted us. And um, he was just full of zeal and excitement to learn more and more. He didn't speak English all that well, but he set himself the task of speaking English. Uh, he does quite well at and good at it now, but um, he uh, now teaches English over in um, Malang, the city where he lives, and, um, uh, but certainly very, very zealous for wanting to do God's work in this nation of Indonesia. Indonesia has a population of about 250 million people. A few little islands. It's an incredibly densely populated place. I think it's like 700 people per square mile. Uh, so they're, they're pretty crowded. And, um, and yet, uh, or should I say also, it is the largest Muslim nation on earth. There's about 210 million Muslims who live in Indonesia. So you can imagine the difficulties that you have. Can you imagine living in the land of Allah and trying to be a Christian? Well, it varies from Muslim nation to Muslim nation. Something interesting and unusual about Indonesia as compared to Malaysia, which is also a Muslim country, in Indonesia, their constitution states that it is illegal for you to be an atheist. Everybody has to have a religion. So they do allow for a diversity of beliefs. Uh, there are Hindus. There are, of course, Muslims. There are Christians. Um, the, I just forget the exact numbers. I may have them somewhere but just approximately, um, well, just think of numbers. You, we've got, I said, 210 million. So you've got 40 million people that are not Muslim. But uh, we are somewhat registered. We have to talk to Mr. Turner about this. But we're somewhat registered as a, an official religion under Indonesian law. But it's almost like the Roman Empire and Christianity. Now, the Christians were, um, what, whatever religions existed, they were allowed to be maintained, but it was difficult to start a new religion. And so Christianity was recognized as the Jewish religion. Well, in Indonesia, some many, many years back, uh, the Seventh-day Adventist moved in under the Dutch rulership and they grew quite rapidly because Indonesia was in need of hospitals and education. And if you move in and promise that I can educate your child, I can give you health benefits, as long as you come along to Sabbath services every week, we'll look after you. So there was a, a sort of an increase in the population of that faith and there are quite a number of Seventh-day Adventists, and they became recognized as a, 
bona fide religion in the Philipp- in uh, Indonesia. But for us to go in there and say, uh, Mr. President, we'd like to start or register a new church, uh, they don't look too kindly on those sort of things. So we're actually recognised under the, you might say, the umbrella of the general Protestant organisations and perhaps specifically under the Seventh-day Adventist organisation because we are what they would regard as Sabbatarians. So it's an interesting setup. But the the other interesting thing about Indonesia that if you are a Muslim, if you want to convert to Christianity, you can. Now, if you want to do that in Saudi Arabia, you'll lose your head, as Mr. Robinson was talking about being beheaded. And, um, uh, or in Malaysia, they won't behead you, but we use the word disfellowship. And if you want to ever know what disfellowshipping really is all about, you go to Malaysia. Because if you're a Muslim and you decide you're going to become a Christian, you become, you, you cannot get a job, you cannot get any benefits, uh, your family disown you, uh, you're actually, you might as well go out and commit suicide and be done with it. Uh, it's a very, very severe situation you find yourself in. So uh, that's Malaysia, but let me get back to Mr. Nusantara in um, uh, Indonesia. The group of individuals that used to meet together uh, with his mother they studied Mr. Armstrong's writings and everything we wrote and um, they had a, a group of about a dozen or 18 people and um, when Aris's mother died, they decided they would want to um, come with us because of the previous relationship and association. The interesting thing that the 12 of these ladies that met together were all evangelists. Anyway, they had to be explained or had explained to them that that's not exactly how things work in the Church of God or what the Bible says. And so um, what um, uh, happened was Arius, who was studying everything he'd get his hands on um, that the church was producing, and we're talking about the Living Church of God and previously the Global Church of God under Dr. Meredith. Arius was studying this, just uh, he couldn't get enough of it. And I did go up there to visit him one time. The trouble was there were these 12 or 18 ladies in the congregation all about 65 and above. <laughs> and Arias said, I know that I have to marry somebody who's in the church. I need somebody who thinks like I do, that we are compatible, that we believe the same thing. And I see that God says we shouldn't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And everybody else in Indonesia is an unbeliever. Believe me. <laughs> And he said, look, if God intends for me to be single for the rest of my life, well, that's his will, and I'm prepared to do that. And he really was. And it wasn't too long after that that he called me and he said, Mr. Todd, you won't believe this. He said, but a friend of one of his family up there, I think it might have been his older sister, um, start asking questions. She's from another town. And she started getting interested in everything that was going on. And would you know, in a matter of a short time, she ends up starting to attend church. She's exactly the right age for Arias. And now they have two wonderful children. And uh, Erna is just a beautiful young lady, Indonesian. Uh, they're compatible. She loves him. He loves her. And... Uh, And here, you know, really, for him and for me and for all of us, I think, God said, okay, here's a young man who's prepared to put me first, to make the sacrifices, to live according to how I have explained in my word. He knows it's not easy. It's the straight and narrow. 
I'm going to bless him. And he did. And it was just wonderful to see. So Arias is, uh, as I said, a, a hard worker. He um, so far has translated 512 sermons. He gets the sermons here from headquarters, translates them into Indonesian, so, and he puts them on the website. So anybody out there who finds the website, they can tune in and listen to uh, the whole, whole sermon in their, their native language. He's done 21, translated 21 lessons of the Bible study course already. We've had those printed up. He's translated 75, or interpreted perhaps, 75 uh, Tomorrow's World telecasts. He's put 80 of the hymns in our hymn book into Basa Indonesian so the locals can sing those. He's translated 80 articles and done 14 booklets. So all on his own. He just wants to see the work grow. He wants the message to go out to the Indonesian people to let them know that the Indonesian government is not always going to be around as it is right now. You may have heard in the news Australia just had a couple of drug runners put to death in Indonesia. They were put in front of the firing squad and just shot just this last week. And, of course, we've broken, up, broken off diplomatic relations with Indonesia but um, they had uh, the government was appealed to and appealed to. Please let these wonderful young fellows off. Um, they don't deserve to die. Of course, they were trying to bring drugs back uh, out of the country to Australia, and and uh, who knows how many young people who would actually die because of their um, wanting to sell drugs on the on the market. We actually had a, a daughter of one of the members in the church some years back, and I did mention this uh, way back, uh, who took an overdose, not an overdose, but took some bad heroin, and within a few hours she was dead. You know, that's sad when you have to talk to one of the church members, and maybe some of you have experienced it. I don't know. I hope not. But, you know, to know that you're own flesh and blood unfortunately is being you know seduced by Satan's society and then has to end up having a destroyed life leave some children uh, because people just wanted to make money selling drugs well these guys got the death penalty and uh, it's it's sad that people seem to think that well they should live they're nice guys, they, but you know. It, 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 anyway, I don't want to go on to that about that right now. But uh, Mr. Nusantara has that desire to um, show the people of Indonesia that 250 million of them, including all those Muslims, it's not Allah that's going to come and save the world or Muhammad. It's going to be Jesus Christ Himself. So that's, that's enough about Indonesia. Uh, we move on to Malaysia. Mr. Rajan Moses uh, looks after our people there. Mr. Moses, of course, is uh, Indian. His first language, though, is English. Uh, he was born in Malaysia. He, um, his dad came across from uh, Andhra Pradesh in uh, eastern India uh, in the, probably the 1920s to work on the cane fields or the rubber plantations. I'm not sure which or maybe both. But Mr. Moses himself was born in, um, in Malaysia. He's a Malaysian citizen. He came into the church in the 1960s. Uh, the church in Malaysia in the worldwide days grew and flourished. We had quite a active um, number of members there, both Chinese and Indian. Uh, we did not have any um, Muslim people, although I do remember a long, long time back, probably in early 80s, meeting a member in the church who said they had been Muslim and had suffered the fate that many of those do who would try to convert. Um, the gentleman didn't stay because of the, the situation. It was just too much for him to bear. But uh, when the apostasy took place in the late 80s, early 90s, 
The Malaysian church split right down the middle. The Chinese people wanted to stay Protestant, and all the Indian people came with Dr. Meredith. And they're all still there with us today. And they've endured, and they're uh, continuing to... um, set a fine example of God's way of life. Mr. Moses is a hard worker. Not only does he look after the people in Malaysia, as you'll see up there, um, but we have a few members in Singapore. We have members in Thailand that he visits, and then a little bit further north and east, uh, uh, west of Thailand. Uh, We have Burma. Um, People worry about when we travel to Burma and, oh, you know, it's a military state and, you know, you, you, know, you don't want to get there, you, you lose your life and it's just horrible, disastrous and all that sort of thing. Well, I've been there several times and I'll tell you what, I've seen more soldiers at the Los Angeles airport than I've seen in Burma. And uh, basically it's a reasonably peaceful place. Occasionally they get stirred up a little bit Uh, Satan and the demons get in there and then that's when the military will come out on the streets. But usually everybody's just left to themselves go about their daily business of trying to find food to eat and sell their wares and and so forth. But we have uh, two congregations in Burma that Mr. Moses oversees. Uh, The history of those two groups goes back to worldwide days, when in the 1960s, the early 1960s, Mr. Armstrong put the World Tomorrow broadcast on Radio Salon, which was a fairly powerful station out of Sri Lanka or out of Salon as it was back then. And a young man by the name of Soleil Bay uh, began listening. Soleil Bay was a school teacher. Uh, English, of course, was fairly widely spoken back in those days because the British had had, once again, a fairly strong influence in there, in that country. And God called him. Um, And he continued to serve those people, very faithful man, until he died in the early 2000s, I think about 2002. Uh, He was up in his mid-70s, late 70s, when that happened. And uh, before he died, we had ordained another man, which was a sort of a relative of his, who lived in the northern part of Burma, uh, Thomas Tile Ho. Thomas is now 72 years old, um, reasonably healthy, uh, probably could outwalk all of us in this room here. Um, he lives in the foothills and the Himalayas up in that part of in, the, in uh, Burma, and. Uh, certainly has no trouble if he wants to go visit some of our scattered people there he'll just walk for days on end until he catches up with them and spends a couple of days with them talking about God's word and encourage them and then he'll leave for home or wherever else and and just a very very faithful individual but he's getting on and we have about 100 people uh, members of the church in Burma we haven't been able to do a lot of um, let's say, advertising or taking the gospel there in recent days. We would like to do that. Uh, but Mr. Moses and Mr. Tile Ho are continuing to look after those faithful people there. But the interesting thing is we have a young man who was a Burmese refugee. Uh, he was with his father many years ago when he was about 10 years old he's about 30 now so going back about 20 years he was um, he left Burma and they were they moved over the um, the border into Thailand and on the border area of Thailand there are many Burmese refugees anyway he lived in the camps there and finally about oh eight or nine years ago, I suppose, the United Nations finally granted him refugee status and he was able to immigrate to England. And through his father and through his uncle, he began to learn about the truth, 
Now, the reason he learned it from his father and his uncle is because these two men were actually the son of sons of Soleil Bay. And Soleil Bay had faithfully taught his children. I forget just how many he had. He had sons and daughters. Uh, there's still a number of them around. And uh, his dad died, as I said, when, when this young fellow's dad died, when he was about, I think, 10 years old. And uh, you may have the opportunity one day to actually hear his story. And But he had, his father had said to his mother, he's lost both his father and mother because life up there is just not, you know, we, we don't know how well off we are, brethren. You know, un, unless you go and live among these people and spend time with them, you know, you, we cannot appreciate the incredible blessings that we have. You know, God has really blessed the lands of Israel, of Ephraim and Manasseh, beyond our wildest understanding. And, and to go and, and visit some of these people, and to, to live in where they live, most of us would, you know, scream with agony. Uh, I visited a family in Indonesia. Uh, they live on the side of a, a, a cliff which leads down to a river. When it rains, and it, we're talking about the tropics, uh, we're talking about as far as rainfall, I don't know, three or four hundred inches a year maybe. And so the ground is so often wet and it will run down the hillside. Where's their house? It's built on the hillside. The, the ground is always wet. And you know what the floor of their house is? It's the ground. And you go in there and you think, what can I do to help these people? You know, the mustiness of, of what you're smelling and the, and the dirt floor that they live on, which has some old carpets over it and they're damp as well. And they live and they sleep in that environment. And um, it's very sad. And then you, you realize what incredible blessings that God has given us in this country and in England and in Australia and New Zealand and the Israelite countries in the world. We don't know what it is, most of us, to say thank you until you actually go and live in that situation and see how some of these people exist. Well... This young man that was given refugee status, as I said in Burma or in Thailand, uh, his name is Tuwa. Tuwa Lei Bay. He's an actual grandson of Solei Bay, whom God called. As he was growing up as a teenager, he wasn't really interested in the work, but he moved to London and then God started working on his mind. And he had spent many years in one of the refugee camps in Thailand. Mr. Rod McNair will remember where, where that was, up around Thosong um, Yang and those areas. Um, we had some very fine people. And, and most of the, I might say, the brethren in the church in Thailand are not actually Thai. They are Burmese or Karen. And um, Mr. McNair would have been one of those responsible for teaching him to speak English and understand the truth. Uh, the sad thing is that the men that were the leaders there, the ones that uh, we've known, have gone. And now, mostly, the church is comprised of the wives and the children, the families of those who come in, came into the church in the 1980s. And perhaps early 90s, but late, you know, the early uh, 80s or whenever we had the ambassador project going up there in Thailand. And so they've remained faithful all these years. But this young man in London, Tuwa, who's a grandson of Soleil Bay, um, he is just so keen. Uh, he's discovered the truth and as I talk to him, it reminds me of my early days of coming in contact with God's work. And you get that incredible excitement of finding a, a little bit of truth in the scriptures. You know, for me, the first thing I discovered was that we weren't going to go to heaven when we died. That was in the magazine July 1961, the first magazine I ever got. 
And then not only in that magazine, the next thing I learned was that we shouldn't be eating pork. It was chapter 35 of the Bible study course. The Bible study that was being serialized in the magazine at that time. You know, when you get that truth and you've never known it before and the thrill and the excitement that comes, I, I see it in this young man right now. And he wants to go back there and I can see that if he maintains that zeal and that excitement, ultimately we could use him in God's work. I think God is calling him for that very purpose. He went to uh, England and now he's got an extremely good job in London. Um, he works for the health department over there. He's had bosses that have come to him and they've said, Tuwa, we want you to apply for this job. We want to give you a promotion. He says, look, but I don't have the qualifications. And they say, well, we realize that, but we see your character. We want to, you to have this job. We will train you on the job. And he's had promotion after promotion. He is just an incredible young Burmese uh, fellow that's keen to do God's work. And uh, hopefully one day we could use him. I could see him helping Mr. Moses in that area, maybe in India as well, in Burma and Thailand. Um, we can be praying for Tuwar and his wife, um, Dibla, and uh, that God can certainly use them in that part of the world because the time is coming when we're not going to be able to travel there. I don't even know whether the internet will be able to function properly in some of those places. So, uh, as I was saying there, we need to be thinking about this. We have brethren there. God has called them. They're made in his image. There are brothers and sisters, and we certainly don't want to lose any of them to some of the wolves that are out there. We need faithful shepherds who are going to look after them, take care of them. Um, in, I, I was talking about Malaysia. Malaysia, I said, is, is, uh, uh, is the state religion is Islam. So uh, it's interesting. It's an intriguing part of the world. Um, Indonesia, Malaysia is a Muhammad. Or, uh, they uh, you know, believe in the Mohammedanism or Islam. You move up into Thailand, it's Buddhist. Move into Burma, it's Buddhist. You move into India then you have Hindu, uh, a few Buddhists in that part of the world, but predominantly Hindu, and a smattering of what we would call Christian peoples throughout that country as well. We don't have a big work in India. Dr. Meredith, of course, wants to get the gospel in there. We have a, a small door that's open for us in Goa. Uh, we're on television about twice a day there. Um, but we have very little response. Um, why? I, I don't know. Um, in a country of almost one and a half billion people, we have four members. Um, we get emails from people who discover our website. Um, Mr. Amon. They all come in here to headquarters. They write. We've been getting those emails. I don't know how many thousands we have received. I got an email from Mr. Amon just this last week. And because he reads all those that come in and then he decides what to do with them and mostly forwards them on to me and then wants me to decide what to do with them. Anyway, he put a comment on one of his emails last week uh, to me and he said, Finally, a question that makes sense. <laughs> Mostly, they don't want the truth. They write in and they want us to send them money. They want us to build them churches. They already have established churches. They really don't want to come under anybody's authority. They want to be independent. I was over there some time back and talked to a family that somewhat had an interest in God's work and we were in discussions about things and and he said to me um, he said one of the reasons that um, we have so many little churches all around the place 
the people who live out in the country areas have very little work. They may work in the paddy fields, the rice fields, in harvest time or planting time, but any other time they don't have any work available. So how do you earn money? Well, what you do on a Sunday morning, you open your Bible up and you start preaching and then you take up a collection. And hopefully you get enough to keep you alive for the rest of the week. So it's a source of income for them. It's not a source of necessary distributing the truth. I, I attended one of their church services there one time. They asked me to preach, and I did. And I, and I said, okay, turn over here to whatever at Isaiah, whatever. And the next thing I know, it was a, a race between all the women in the church, in the congregation, to be the first one to actually read the scripture. They all jumped up. <laughs> so it was an interesting experience to um, um, have that. But um, we had what we thought might be a viable group of people uh, in India. Um, and so we said to them, right, we need to bring you under the officially under the umbrella of the living church of God, like all the other churches of God throughout the world. And we organized the, the uh, corporate structure, but that's as far as it went. No, we're not going to have anybody tell us how to do things. We're not going to come under anybody's authority. We're our own authority. And so they just decided that they're going to go their separate ways. And yet, you know, they want to teach the truth. They want to hear the truth, but they don't want to be a part of the government of God's church. Now, that's an important aspect of understanding the fundamentals of God's way of life. It's, it's government all the way down from God to Christ, down through Dr. Meredith and the church and the ministry and into the family, the husband, the wife, the children, and yet they cannot comprehend that. And it's just sad to see. Um, we could have, you know, they, they could have supported us. We could have been able to perhaps put the program on television up there. Maybe one day we will, but it won't be with uh, their involvement. So right now, we just had uh, a family, husband and wife, and a couple of their children, or their children, who said, no, we're going to stick with the living church of God. This is the truth. And we have another family in, um, and they're up there, these people I was just talking about, they're up in the northeastern part of India. You'll see a little dot up there. Um, and uh, we have another family in Calcutta. Uh, Calcutta, of course, is a very heavily, densely populated city. And um, we have two Anglo-Indians or family uh, living there and their child. Uh, they're certainly very faithful and dedicated. And so in this vast, enormous area of the world, one and a half billion people, we've got four members. But you know what? I think about Abraham. And whatever the population of the world must have been in his day. You know, if we refer to him as a Christian, he was the only one on the face of the earth that knew God. And so God's people, you know, they can be very few in number. And we are very few in number. As Dr. Merritt says, you know, we're less than a quarter of a peanut shell in the Pacific Ocean. And we are. And yet one day, brethren, we're going to have the opportunity to have the world come and worship before our feet. And not out of our pride or vanity or anything like that, but because they know that we did live in this age, we were faithful to God's way of life in a world that is ruled over by Satan the devil, that we're able to resist him, and we endured to the end. Now, it's an incredible calling that God has given to us. And I see these people, they're all what the scriptures refer to as Gentile people, or maybe we could say non-Israelite, but very dedicated to the God of the Bible. And they, I visited, and I might have told you this one another time, I visited a man up in New Guinea. And uh, he came to me and he held me by the hands and he says, you know, Mr. Tyler, he says, I can't wait for the time when I'm going to have the opportunity to teach God's people 
his truth. You know, and he was just, he's dead now, unfortunately. He died a few years back. But just the zeal there of this man who is not a recipient of the blessings of Israel, but a recipient of the truth. And he could see that we, as God's people, don't appreciate what we have. We don't appreciate the blessings. And sometimes in God's church, we don't even appreciate the truth we have. You know, the words that tell us to live by every word of God. You know, we need to think about those things seriously. Mr. Robinson in his sermonette talked about our words and, uh, you know, the hatred that comes in our hearts and, and so forth. And I often think one of the things that I certainly don't have time to talk about today was, you know, how we can, you know, you read Isaiah chapter, chapter 2 about the millennium and Christ setting up his government in Jerusalem and how it says they will learn war no more. And we need to even think about those things, how we use our words, what we say about other people. You know, do we run them down? Do we attack them? You know, we can use our words of weapons as spiritual swords to run people through. And one of the things, you know, as I travel around and I visit these places, one of the things that I see more than anything else is the difficulties we get into because we don't use our words right, because we say things we oughtn't say, that we run people down. And it's a sad thing. We need to read James chapter 1 and verse 26, James chapter 3, about the tongue and our our use of how we use our language. I, I haven't had time to even talk about the Philippines. And the uh, Philippines is one of our largest church areas. We've got nearly 700 people that attend church up there every Sabbath. A myriad of, I think it's 24 to 30 congregations and video groups that meet together. Um, Mr. Kinnear Penman is the minister up there. We transferred him up there from New Zealand. He's doing a fine job um, being a minister on the spot, uh, teaching those people God's way of life. And they have been, um, I'll put it this way, uh, back in 2004, we got to a situation where we weren't able to have a resident minister living in um, uh, when I say a, a, a well-trained resident minister living in the Philippines. Mr. Rod McNair was there and transferred out in 2004 and Mr. King took over for a few years, but he administered from Melbourne and then Mr. Darrell Tanner took over in 2006 when Mr. King went to England. And uh, But Mr. Tanner lived up in Brisbane, as you'll see over there on the Middle East Coast, the Central East Coast of Australia. But we weren't able to be there constantly and uh, we had men there that were very dedicated, but they really need to be, needed to be trained. And uh, under individuals or men that have been in the ministry for a long time, that have been in the church for a long time, have been through either the leadership programs, the spokesman's club or ambassador college and uh, in previous years. Um, because if that's not there, and I might add, many of the members in the Philippines originally found their history in the Church of God's Seventh Day. So there, were, there was a fair amount of unlearning that had to take place. And so Mr. Penman is up there right now teaching them many of the uh, aspects of God's way of life, God's government, and... Um, and certainly doing a fine job there. He has the, has the assistance of another five full-time elders, and uh, I was able to spend a little bit of time there with them recently. We had a ministerial conference. We had our annual general meeting and so forth. But once again, uh, people who really want to learn God's way and uh, be a part of God's family and kingdom when Christ returns. I haven't had time to talk about New Zealand. I'll just add that right now Mr. Paul Kearns is looking after the uh, probably about a dozen congregations that we have in New Zealand. So you can imagine one man looking after that many congregations. Uh, you can't be there every Sabbath. Uh, we have only about 130 people there, but they're scattered through the North Isle and South Isle. 
And just recently, we sent um, uh, Mr. Tony LeMann, who worked in the Australasian office in Adelaide with us, we sent him across to New Zealand to help Mr. Kearns. Now, I do want to just interject here. Both Mr. Kearns and Mr. LeMann are both graduates of Living University. And they're our first two, as far as I know, first two bachelor graduates that we've been able to use in the work. Mr. Kearns has been ordained as a, uh, an elder. Uh, he's doing a remarkable job for a young man and uh, he's full of zeal and enthusiasm and youthfulness to be able to look after that area. And now we have Mr. LeMann over there who's also, actually Mr. Mann, I believe, was our first LU graduate. Uh, he's been ordained as a deacon and he is assisting Mr. Kearns over there with the New Zealand work. Um, back in Australia, you can see the various churches we have. We have five major areas. Brisbane on the central east coast, coming down a little bit further, we have Sydney and Canberra. Right in the south, we have Melbourne. In the central south, there's Adelaide, where the original office is, and over in Perth uh, in the west, uh, we have a congregation there taken care of by Mr. Mel Jennings. So. Uh, that's a brief synopsis of God's people in that part of the world. I've not talked about Sri Lanka. Uh, Sri Lanka is, uh, as I said, well, I mentioned it earlier on, but uh, we did have around 50 people there in recent days, but uh, because certain individuals crept in unawares, I'll put it that way, or maybe awares in some cases, um, managed to subvert a number of the people and they've scattered into a couple of different groups, and we have only about a dozen people left, but those dozen that are there certainly are very dedicated. Mr. Zig Zwolby is their overall pastor. He lives in Melbourne, believe it or not, so he's, um, he's not one that can get there every weekend. Um, he's Mr. Zwolby. I am very thankful for him. Um, he and his wife uh, serve those people there. They travel two or three times at their own expense to Sri Lanka to look after those people. We do have a local elder in Sri Lanka, Mr. Kuma de Silva. Um, he's not Sri Lankan as such. Uh, well, I better not say that. He is Sri Lankan. But he's descended from the Portuguese, uh, the Burgers, as they're referred to in uh, that part of the world. So he, he speaks um, uh, Sri Lankan. Um, he speaks English. And uh, he's a brilliant musician. And he's the one that on the spot looks after our people there every week. Very faithful man. Mr. Zwolby, his name begins with a Z. Um, so I know he's not going to be visited by Mr. McNair or Mr. De Simone anytime soon. But um, he, uh, as I said, Mr. Zwolby lives... Mr. Zwolby actually is uh, a Latvian, uh, but his uh, family immigrated to Australia after the war, so for all intents and purposes, he's an Australian. But he speaks to those people every week. He goes on Skype. He has a Bible study with them. He runs Spokesman's Club. And is just a very dedicated man looking after those people there and keeping them faithful. So... We're very grateful for the men we have. The whole area, the region, is basically unified. All the men are dedicated and zealous for God's work. And uh, all I can say, we can be very grateful that we have men like that that have given themselves, their time, their lives to serve God's people. So that's just a, a brief overview. Uh, there's a lot more I could, I could say, but I've run out of time. And next time I'm here, I'll give the sermon that I intended to give, and you'll hear it then. Okay, so please pray for us, pray praise for those people living in uh, Muslim countries, living in Burmese, or living in um, uh, Buddhist areas, living in Hindu um, conditions. It is a challenge to stand up for the truth, and all I can say is those people are going to be given a medal, I'm sure, when God's kingdom to come comes, and maybe some of us will have the opportunity to work for those faithful brethren.